You may know Chuck Rainey as the legendary Steely Dan bassist that has played on some of the most significant recording projects in music history. What you may not know is that Chuck was a bassist in the making from the very beginning. You see, as a young musician, he started out as a brass and woodwind guy, playing trumpet and eventually baritone. In the end, the low notes he began playing on his trumpet won out as he migrated to the four-stringed instrument that today has defined his musical career and persona. Also, you might not know that he actually toured with the Beatles on their second U.S. tour while playing in King Curtis's band. In short, our guest has played with the best of them, including Quincy Jones, Donny Hathaway, Sergio Mendez, Aretha Franklin, Donald Fagan, Walter Becker, and Bernard Purdy. And he's still going strong. We welcome the legendary Chuck Rainey to Inside Music Cast. Hey, Chuck, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. My yeah, pleasure. Good. All right. good to have you with us, Chuck. Hey, listen, we know of, of your accomplishments, and chances are our, our audience, um, they're very familiar with the name Chuck Rainey. And, um, and we'll get to definitely in, into that in just a little bit. But uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the, the depth of your musical foundation that, uh, that you've experienced in, in, your, in your career. And because you began, really, your musical journey um, playing the classics as a trumpet player. Isn't that correct? Uh, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. I, I kind of think, though, I look a little further than that. Okay. In that uh, uh, this kind of uh, question or conversation has always come up uh, with a lot of people in my age genre. Mm-hmm. And we talk about uh, what our experiences were. And I've, I feel very, very kindred to uh, uh, when I was maybe two or three, the music that I was listening to. Mm-hmm. which uh, And we had a piano in the house. Right. And my mother played the piano. My father played the piano, although they were not professionals. Sure, uh, but the music that we heard on the radio and the music that they they bought uh, at around two or three, and I do remember it. Um, uh, it was more or less of the of the uh, operatic, like Mario Alonso, and then also whatever was on the pop radio at that particular time. But the popular music and being able to just you know just hear melodies and just do that. Now, also too, I was born and raised into. Uh, 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 a, a Pentecostal church, mm-hmm, right? And uh, from the age of three all the way up to maybe sixteen, uh, I was constantly uh, hearing mm-hmm. uh, uh, feels and rhythms from church, sure, right? right. Uh, especially the Pentecostal church that they call the Holy Roller Church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but those rhythms, and along with the rhythms too, I still go back. Uh, along at that time, is I was always <clears throat> very fond of drum corps. Mm-hmm. Oh, me and, too. Uh, and I listened to, I uh, was always infatuated by parades, and I was in a lot of them because I, I was a, uh, I guess, starting around the sixth grade, I was playing the trumpet. And uh-huh. So I was in um, uh, the high school band, or not the high school band, sixth, uh, in sixth grade, but I was in a, an ensemble in the sixth grade. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, in junior high school and high school, I was in the high school band, along with other independent bands throughout the city of Youngstown and Farrell, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Uh, just making up bands, you know. But right. I've had a lot of experience in a marching band, and I've always felt very, very akin to um, uh, to the drum corps. Speaking of drum corps, have you heard of or have you ever been to a, a drum corps international event? Uh, yeah, uh, the Blue Devils come here to Bedford okay. uh, from time to time yeah. um, at the BED Stadium to rehearse. <clears throat> so I'm familiar with, uh, I'm definitely familiar with, uh, but I've never seen a competition. Now, what I have seen, which really uh, is, uh, is the Battle of the Bands mm-hmm. uh, from, uh, 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 from the south part of the United States, the black right. colleges, right, and right. universities. 
And so, like, I have always been a number one fan of, uh, of North Carolina A&T, which was the first show band when I was in mm-hmm. high school. But now, Florida A&M, the Marching 100, very, yeah. very exciting. But then, of course, the rest of them are that exciting, too. Mm-hmm. You know, Grambling and, right. and other schools have the same format. But I would think that um, uh, before it got to really, when I had to play recitals uh, with my trumpet, and when I got into college, uh, I had the unfortunate, although very fortunate situation, in that uh, I played baritone horn, mm-hmm. which I enjoyed very, very much. And it sort of kind of pushed my way into the lower sound of, uh, of music, which I was always there. I was playing tuba parts on my trumpet. Oh, <laughs> really? Merits and stuff like that. So, of wow. course, I didn't know I would be a bass player. Uh-huh. But a lot goes into, I think, what my, what, what, what my background in music is. The R&B scene, uh, the scene in the 50s, I was in a doo-wop group in my hometown. We were pretty good, too. Yeah. I always say that, but we were all, they were, all the groups were good. Yeah. But, uh, so I've had a very steady diet of all kinds of music. And, you know, when you're born and raised right on the uh, borderline of uh, Ohio and Pennsylvania, about mm-hmm. 60 miles south of Lake Erie, they get a lot of bluegrass. Yeah, yeah. And you hear a lot of bluegrass. True. And I heard as much bluegrass as I did R&B because that's what was on the radio station. And it was a steel mecca, so all kinds of uh, people uh, lived in the area. And, of course, entertainment came. Uh, so, like, I've had a solid background of a lot of things. Uh, yeah. Of course, in college, mm-hmm. it was more uh, Baroque kind of music or, you know, uh, orchestra music mm-hmm. uh, that we did do. Um, but I think that I've been very fortunate to have so much exposure different kinds of music, especially music that has a lot of rhythm in it. Mm. On that, on that, to your point, what would that uh, having such a wide variety of musical exposure, and you know, because you were in in uh, very close to you, know, just a little east of the Midwest, and you you say you've heard a lot of bluegrass and R and B and all that. What what type of what's what's the difference of that being exposed to that kind of music as opposed to being in the South where you get one or you know a limited amount of of music? What does that do for you in in preparing for your career? Well, uh, I, I've always thought that everybody should leave home mm-hmm. uh, right after high school. Hmm. Uh, I left home. I went, uh, did my uh, army stint. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I spent one year in college. But then, you know, basically I was not at home then because I had my own place or moved about if I was around town. Right. But the thing is, like, you can be, uh, you, um, uh, that, that's a very good question. I think that any young person or person that is, Playing locally uh, is in their safe as far as they're making money and taking care of their family. You're going to have that group of people that do that, but then you're going to find the the the, uh, the individual that leaves home to go to New York or go to even another city. Mm-hmm. You begin to get an influx uh, or an influx of different kinds of ideas that weren't in your local environment. Now, I always preach about New York City uh, more than any other major city. Uh, New York City or Miami, the, you know, the southern Florida, uh, Florida area, where uh, culturally the environment is full of different kinds of people from different places. Sure. And they were, and they're also good musicians. Mm-hmm. And so when you go into a different environment where you have to please uh, uh, two or three different kinds of people's interests, if you want to work, it's hard enough being a musician to take care of your family, but you got to learn how to play everything. Mm-hmm. And even once you learn how to play and understand everything, you bring yourself to it. 
So if you're from Cuba, you do bring your Cubanism, if I can put it that <laughs> right. way, into R&B. Exactly. Or, or and, and vice versa for all ethnic people. Mm-hmm. In New York, it's just, you know, one big pile of fusion right. based upon one particular uh, uh, groove, but then in it you have all the fusion, all the nuances from other cultures as opposed to being, say, like in Charleston, uh, where you, you, if you're a jazz player, you get a steady diet of that. Mm-hmm. But you see, that's necessary because when they come to New York, they give us what it really is. The people that come from New Orleans, when they come up to New York and merge into that New York uh, field scene, they do bring another culture in music and another style, yeah. uh, especially jazz. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, you know, uh, jazz uh, you know, comes out of every place in the United States, but I'm talking about the beginning of what jazz was, which came out of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, the players that were great on the West Coast, they just graduated, uh, like when they moved to the East Coast, they just uh, consciously or unconsciously, you begin to get and hear ideas, especially if you're awake. Mm-hmm. Uh, and paying attention, mm-hmm. I like Miles's uh, idea, and that Miles always, uh, in a way, I agree with him in a way, but uh, he always thought that yesterday was yesterday. It's about right now. Yeah. You know what am I doing now? And of course, anybody uh, say in their forties, whatever it is they're doing now, they're either doing what they did when in their twenties, or they have merged <laughs> themselves into what people are doing. You're right. You know uh, what the music is sounding like. So I guess to answer your question. There's a difference. If you stay at home, that's just about where it's going to be for you. Right, yeah. Well, speaking of New York, was it shortly after your stint in the military that uh, y- that you found yourself in New York at that time? Yeah. And that's that's when you started uh, doing sessions, right? Oh, no. No? Oh, no. I didn't just walk into that. I had to really uh, uh, live in New York mm-hmm. and, um, and, and be a player that everybody, you know, they need. You know, you, you you go to New York and you got to start playing somewhere. People have to know that you can play. Right. So you got to start at ground level. What was ground level for you? Where, 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 in the oh, club? just doing gigs, mm-hmm. uh, just doing uh, uh, pickup gigs, mm-hmm. playing whatever, whoever needed a bass player. Right. R&B, you know, um, jazz, even at the time I was not really prepared to do some things, but it's all a learning process. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, how... How dumb, I hate to use that word, but how dumb can an individual be? And that you, once you get immersed into what you're doing, mm-hmm. you got to go through what you got to go through. And sooner or later, you know, you get your own pad, and then somebody asks you to do this, and you go on the road with this person, and then you come back, and you do a vocal, and finally you do a session, and then that session, you do another one, and then do another one. You know, it, right. it, things just grow. So mm-hmm. it, it definitely started at ground zero, my friend. Believe right. me, it did. I read an interesting story about uh, your friend Eric Gale. I think you're, you were quoted as saying, a, or he was saying, that if you got a consistent phone number, he'd start calling you. For uh, There you go. We found ourselves out on the road with Sam Cooke. Right, right. That's where we met. Mm-hmm. And um, he befriended me, and um, uh, I liked his power. He was a very assertive, powerful individual. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he chose me to want to, you know, he wanted me to work with him in the studio as opposed to... Uh, he thought the other guys were too old. Mm-hmm. And at that time, people sitting doing studio work were in their 40s. There were people that, that had uh, retired from playing bands on the road, and yeah. you know now they're just older in their 40s, and we were in our 20s. Mm-hmm. And, so, and he just had the power because he was definitely a very strict businessman. 
and uh, being a musician, you want to work with somebody that you know is going to be responsible for your money. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was a good teacher. As a matter of fact, he's responsible for my career. Well, he's definitely, uh, when you think of the, the premier guitarist in, in New York, I mean, the, just the name of Eric Gale just, just resounds. Just, you know, he's worked with everyone famous for, he's worked with Bob James, his solo work and all that. I mean, he, uh, he, he's just got this uh, neat intuition about, uh, about music that I really appreciate, you know. Plus all the hit records, you know, in the days that we're making singles. Right. I'm not going to say it's a, it, it's a shame, that's the wrong word. But there are so many unsung heroes in uh, in the success of music, and they're usually the sidemen. Mm-hmm. Um, right. It's usually the sidemen. People like Eric, even before I arrived, Eric and Bernard Purdy, just about every record that was a hit on the radio coming out of New York, they were the rhythm section. Now, of course, New York is large. You have other rhythm sections. But when it comes to being very, very special, you know, uh, uh, producers and people... They, they come different kinds of ways. You've got producers that don't really do anything. All they do is put people together. Now, that's doing something. I think mm-hmm. that uh, they're just continuity directors. And you have some producers who who uh, uh, really have an idea. And sometimes it's very hard for an arranger to write for all parts. And most of the, most of the success of a lot of records, the producer uh, was in league with an arranger who did not overwrite or try and write. Uh, you just get people that knew what to do. Mm-hmm. Which is a, the uh, Atlantic Records had a great, uh, you know, that all, all of this stuff was great. Mm-hmm. You just hire people that are used to going in, sitting down, knowing what the instrument does, uh, you know, for the studio, and just playing. Also, too, the same people playing together. A lot of that stuff out of there, you got the same four or five people every time you look at a session, mm-hmm. almost like over in Motown. Mm-hmm. And New York being so much bigger, they had they had a few different sec- uh, sections of people that played all the time. A producer works with the same people that he's comfortable with until they either you know quit or die or do something drastic to get fired. But everybody has their own family of what they do in New York. Someone like Eric Gale and you know, Bernard Purdy, and I would include myself, but you know I'm just talking about that kind of person. Uh, Gary Chester, Bill Lavonia. Mm-hmm. I mean, every record that came off out of New York City, a certain group of players were on it, mm-hmm. and. The music was not written for them. You know, the music was not written the same way on the West Coast, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. So everybody wants to be successful. And so you go with, that's also, too, I noticed about New York, the color barrier in New York was unlike uh, uh, any other place in the United States, and there was none. Mm-hmm. And maybe for an orchestra, where you would have uh, an orchestra that would have uh, a, a sprinkled a few blacks, but you will look at it, and it's basically in the eyes of the people that hire the band, they're looking for the best player, mm-hmm. no matter where he comes from or where he lives, as long as he can play and he looks presentable. Mm-hmm. In all other major situations, you know, like uh, the color barrier was a little bit different. You really hire your brother-in-law, mm-hmm. right. unless you're a phenomenal cello, so a phenomenal violin player. Right. And you almost have to hire it because you want the orchestra to sound good, or else somebody else is going to get the job. Mm-hmm. So uh, in New York, they seem that the, the individuals that were able to just play, just show yeah. themselves that they can play. You know, in New York, they hired the best person for the job and the one that they can count on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know if I'm getting away from your question. No, 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 no not at all. You're developing it. That's uh, which which leads to my to my next question: of Was it in New York City that uh, you hooked up with uh, King Curtis? Okay, because early on, uh, you know, you actually toured with King Curtis, I believe, on the second Beatles tour across the country. Tell us a little bit about that. That's uh, that sounds really interesting. Uh, well, it was very interesting. Um, it, it, it's funny how life is. You know, get yourself into a situation. Number one, you can imagine that when that uh, after the, the the Beatles had come here the year before, you can imagine that everybody and their mother and their grandmother wanted to be on the next tour. Sure. And so when you are fortunate to be involved at the level that I was now is because of King Curtis. Uh, he was able to either business-wise or whatever it is, or whatever he was able to get, they were able to get to him. Now, of course, he had a legacy, too. Sure. And he should have been on that because a lot of music that the Europeans enjoyed, he was a saxophone player, mm-hmm. especially with the coasters and a sure. lot of records. Yeah, he played on Buddy Holly even, so he, he was oh, around. absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're a great saxophone player, and he had a very good band. Uh, I am very, very proud of being in that band because I can say this for a fact. I was in that band for about three and a half, four years. And we were a steady working band. So being employed with King Curtis was uh, one of the great things in New York. Mm -hmm. I think Jimmy Castro was another band that worked all the time. A lot of musicians don't have steady work. And for the time that I was working or in the band with King Curtis, um, I had three and a half to four years of steady work. Mm-hmm. And the band was an excellent band. And in saying what I just said, I'll say this from the bottom of my heart, and I mean it to be, and I don't know how many people can say this, we never had a bad night. Wow. wow. We never had a bad song. We never had a bad, the only thing negative would be getting from place to place. But when it came to the music, we never had a bad song. We never had a bad night. Uh, we never had, it was always A+. plus. Wow. A plus. So now when he with the Beatles, it's very interesting because number one, we're employed by him. Right. And when when he told us that we were going to do this particular thing, mm-hmm. it was not we didn't think about it in that we did whatever he said the gig was taking us. Right. Now of course the shock is Chase Stadium and said, <laughs> Well now as you walk up and down Broadway they had these uh, uh big signs saying the Beatles are coming. Mm-hmm. Now, being that we were a, a uh, more of a jazz R&B cover band that worked a whole lot, uh, I was not listening to pop music. Now, I was listening to pop music, but I wasn't. Right. I was learning our material, doing what we had to do, and of course, he was the master at seeing what the current record is, and we would learn that. Mm-hmm. So the Beatles, the whole, uh, all of us, maybe with the exception of him, we had no idea who the Beatles were other than that they were a group from England. Right. <laughs> and, and they had funny haircuts. Right. And um, now this tour was kind of a tour where we had a private plane, everybody that was on the tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we all flew on the same uh, private plane. Really? However, it, it, it was, and of course on a plane like that, everybody does mingle. And sooner or later you, you, you meet everybody from, you know, from all over, you know, and stuff like that. But, uh, the way the show went, we were on first. And all these venues were very large. So as soon as we finished what we had to do, we, and also too where they would house the different uh, bands and musicians, was not just right under the stage. You had to walk to it or be driven to it. Right. Um, and the Kyle Palace uh, was the only place to where you, you know, if you wanted to see their show, you could see it. 
the other ones you have to sort of kind of go out of your way. And they were so protective of everybody involved in the band that we would just go and maybe have uh, one of them five-star meals in a particular area uh, or be taken back to the hotel because when it's over, it's going to be traffic and stuff like that. We never got a chance to hear or see um, uh, them until maybe next to the last show, and I forget where it was, where uh, we, we knew the magnitude of people charging the plane and, you know, and having police escort into the hotel, mm-hmm. people trying to get a piece of me, and I'm just a bass player, you know. <laughs> you're, just along <laughs> for the, you're just along for the ride. <laughs> and, and so then you begin to, after a while, it sinks in that you're really, and then, of course, Shea Stadium was the first one. And when you play uh, in Shea Stadium, it, it, it's a kind of a shock that, for me, it did not register until maybe a couple of years ago. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, in that I've done, you know, I, I uh, the, the biggest thing I had done up to that point is I traveled with Jackie Wilson, mm-hmm. and at that time, uh, two, three thousand people at a concert was huge, and you know you had the big time. Mm-hmm. But now here, it was just that we didn't really, uh, uh, I didn't. I'll speak for myself. Didn't start listening or wanting to hear, and maybe it was a little sooner. And the one thing that I noticed in listening to them and watching their show is that their sound was a little different than everybody else on the show. Um, it sounded different. It was a lot cleaner. It was a lot more specific. And there were two other bands from England with them. And when you stand around, because of all the noise that's generated, and it's a spectacle to see what was going on. Mm-hmm. And so we want to go out and just look at what the spectacle was. <laughs> I mean, I've right. never seen anything like this. Mm-hmm. And you notice that after the uh, 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 the bands from England played, they changed the entire stage. They changed the they changed all the amplification. Everything uh-huh. was changed, uh-huh. drums and everything, so that they had something special going on. Yeah, and um, I think it, 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 I think for sure that it was the last. I forget where it was. Maybe it was Montana, to where you really began to start talking about uh, 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 them, and that they were very clean. The, the sound was very clean. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the, at the Kyle Palace, the vocals, it was just very, very clean. There mm-hmm. was no over anything. Everything was very specific. And their harmony was perfect. And I became a fan of of, of the Beatles at that time just from hearing them sing together. Right. You know, um, uh, now when I say a fan, I mean someone who will listen to, you know, you start listening to it, whereas before you would cut it off. Right, but you uh, start looking. Another thing too, I regret in that George and John <clears throat> were really, really sweethearts. Really, on this tour, and I don't mind this being public. I'm gonna try and say this as nice as I can. <laughs> uh, George and John were really sweet. They played cards with us, uh-huh. talked with us, and Ringo and uh, and Paul were very, very distant. Very, very distant. Interesting. Very, very pumped. You know, never involved themselves. Uh, with, with us, you know, stateside people. Mm-hmm. Uh, very quiet and very, I want to say pompous, but, you know, when you see two guys that are just so outwardly friendly, and then another two guys that just totally ignore you or never say anything, not that they had to. Mm-hmm. Not saying that at all, but uh, Paul and Ringo were, uh, you know, a bit, uh, very, very standoffish. Hey, listen, uh, let's dig in a little bit. You mentioned uh, your your peer, Bernard Purdy, who, and Bernard's been a guest of ours on, on the show. And, uh, 
You know, I'm going to mention a couple names, uh, guys that, that that stand out. For instance, Bernard, and and just tell me a little bit a bit about your experience working with these guys because they're premier, and also Richard T. And working with Richard, tell us a little bit about uh, Bernard and 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 Richard. You know, we've already talked about Eric, uh, mm-hmm. but Bernard and, and and Richard. Well, I think that Bernard, uh, uh, like if I had become a drummer, uh, I think I would be just like him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I. Bernard and I played a lot of local gigs in, in, uh, in New York. Uh, best bass player and drummer, you know, when you're just doing the, 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 the club thing and the party thing. And um, I, um, uh, in coming into the studio scene uh, and seeing Bernard there, he was there before I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, it was, uh, I think, it, it was great to see him because we always played very well together. Mm-hmm. Get ideas from each other, so it was great seeing him. I think during my career, <clears throat> when people say Chuck Rainey, a lot of although I I was very fortunate to be in different musical environments in New York. Mm-hmm. If if that makes sense, what I'm saying. Yeah, definitely. There's a, a certain environment that I would work with this group of people, and then mm-hmm. it was another environment where I was the bass player in this environment, and maybe another one. Mm-hmm. You know, and I imagine that we all did kind of do that. But in coming in and working with Bernard, uh, of course, Eric was the, uh, Eric and Paul Griffin were the stable there. And we all worked very, very well together because we played so much together outside of playing impromptu music. So with Bernard, Bernard is, uh, uh, I, 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 I would say that, uh, from my point of view that I've stood on his shoulders many, many times because he has given me the energy to do things that people um, comment about. Mm-hmm. Uh, playing with him is easy to do it. Uh, you know, to be myself or to be what people see in me, it's easy to do it in working with Bernard, whereas it would be a little diff- more difficult to do those kind of things with other drummers, not to say that we didn't work well together. Mm-hmm. But with Bernard, it was very, very special. Bernard also played in the drum corps in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And I kind of think all the nuances that come with the drum corps and the feel that probably what united me with him. Interesting. He's listening to. He enjoys a lot of people that are good like him. They don't really hear someone else that's good or or compliment, but like he had good ears. Mm -hmm. Uh, Richard came along a few years later because he was a bit younger than we were. And uh, I forget where I first uh, met Richard. It may have been uh, in, in the studio. And he was the arranger. Richard T's persona was one of his greatest assets. Yeah, when you meet him and look at him, you sort of kind of immediately, he has you. Yeah. Whatever it is that he's saying, you listen to it. Yeah. Uh, and musically, Richard is one of the very few people that had absolute pitch mm-hmm. uh, that I knew. Right. He, he had absolute pitch and he had total command over the piano. Now, a lot of people don't have that. Uh, and the ones that do should be acknowledged, and he was one of them. There was nothing he didn't know about the piano, and he could sight-read the most complicated music. Really? Um, uh, I've seen Richard in situations, Richard and Donnie Hathaway, where the orchestra were not respecting them because of the way they looked. Uh-huh. And I'm not talking about color, I'm just talking about the way they were dressed. Yeah, I see. Like, like Richard was a night person, right? Mm-hmm. hung out. He would hang out. I don't know about uh, Donnie, but uh, uh, Richard sometimes would come to the studio but not be looking par to what the room was looking at. <laughs> right. Trying to say. Interesting. However, and, and so at the very beginning, uh, a lot of the uh, musicians 
uh, especially uh, string players, uh, who will begin to kind of look down their nose. Now, of course, everybody's there making money. Right. But once they hear the arrangement and write the arrangement and look at his direction, there's one way that a leader can look at you that tells you that he knows what he's talking about and just do it. Yeah. And, of course, the musicians are looking to stay on the job, and you begin to respect what they're doing as opposed to what they look like. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I want to inject into one more name. Uh, Sergio Mendez, um, you did a little bit of work with him. What, how, how deeply did you get involved with, uh, with Sergio Mendez? Well, I, I tell you, I found Sergio to be um, uh, uh, what you call a bright light in my career at that uh-huh. time because, number one, I come from Youngstown, Ohio. And I went from Youngstown to Montreal to New York, where there's a lot of Latin or Afro-Latin or Cuban sounds right, right, in right. music. Now, in playing, going through my session years, when I got to California and, and, and ran into Sergio, Sergio's music was everything that I had really almost wanted to be involved in. You know, in that he did not have me playing specific uh, Latin lines, which bothered me in New York. You know, it always reminded me of working for, uh, I, did a, uh, I did a few records for Cal Jada and Gary McFarlane, mm-hmm. and they, they, they wrote Latin style. And uh, one session I could not read the part because, uh, you know, the, the, the bass wasn't on one, and there was a lot of ledger line notes, which was my weakness, probably still is. I'll admit to, but not as bad as it was then. Mm-hmm. And they had to call in Chow uh, from Cuba to play mm-hmm. the part. Mm-hmm. I also remember getting uh, uh, working with Herbie Hancock with a, a, a Brazilian guy, and in our rehearsal, I, I couldn't read the part, and uh, it was just different. Uh, whereas I wish I could have been like with my Willie Bobo days, where Willie said, "Just play what you feel, man. You're in the environment," <laughs> and the, with my style would fit just about anything. I had fun with Willie Bobo, but now when it comes to um, uh, uh, Sergio, it was almost the same thing. Hmm. I found him to be a very gracious man, despite what other people have said about him, which has been been negative, but I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. I found him to be very gracious. As a matter of fact, he gave me writing on some song that we were working on at his house one time, which I thought was gracious. Uh, but I liked, uh, I really I liked working with him and wish that uh, I could have continued. Mm-hmm. Hey, I want to jump ahead, and I know you've answered questions about this, you know, in the past, and, and uh, but, you know, you, you've played on, on several uh, Steely Dan albums, starting, I think, in 75 uh, with that Katie Lyde project, and uh, tell us a little bit about your experience with in working with Donald and Walter. Um, you know, around 72, 73 uh-huh. was uh, when everybody or the people that ended up in L.A., or there's a surge for people moving from New York to L.A. Sure. Artists and musicians. And mm-hmm. The Night Show Band even moved from New York to L.A. And I was on the freeway one day and uh, in traffic. And the car that was next to me in rush hour traffic was uh, Gary Katz. Yeah. And I hadn't seen Gary for maybe two or three years. Uh-huh. And I had worked for him a lot in New York. And so, like, he pointed to his ear, you know, with his fingers, a call. And I told him that at the time I was on answering service, Your Girl, which he was familiar with, the number. And so he called me and, uh, and asked me to come over that he had a gig. Now, we don't ask who the gig is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who the artist is. We don't ask. All we want to know is what the studio is, what time you want to start, and is it a unique gig. Right. That's what musicians ask for. <laughs> they don't ask for what a lot of people I don't understand this generation. They want too much information. Uh, so it causes the, uh, the person calling them not to deal with it anymore. 
everybody can't be privy to everything. Right. Anyway, I go over and um, and uh, and meet Walter and Donald, mm-hmm. and uh, they have a good core chart of what they want to do. And to me, it's a session. Uh, mm-hmm. I hear basically what they got going. I hear how it is, and I just put in what I think as a session player. Right. And um, if I'm not mistaken, they had to get rid of Katie Lied pretty quick because they were going to Warner Music. Uh, I think I may have spent a week there, two sessions a day with them, mm-hmm. and um, found it to be very interesting. Yeah. You know, totally free, and we had to do it quick. Um, uh, and, you know, usually quick, a week is a quick, ten songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and then got a call back again. I think it was a royal scam, and uh, right. no music written, just chord changes, uh-huh. and it's fun. Number one, it's fun because uh, I'm, I'm being paid double scale. Right. I was I was a double scale player. It means I'm employed. Okay. I have a three car garage out in the valley, a wife and a baby and a dog, and you know I had to you know when you're living in Los Angeles or Hollywood, as I say, you got to make money. Mm-hmm. And then you begin to sort of kind of see uh, that this may take longer than it was previously arranged, mm-hmm. and that's happiness because more money. Uh, in New York, they would have had to get it done quicker. Right. Uh, but out there, things are a little different. You make a little bit more money. Your things are interesting. The players are great. I enjoy working with Jeff Carroll. Yeah. Um, he's a great friend and a real good musician. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Walter and Donald uh, had a tendency to bother a lot of people. <laughs> um, I think that the reason that I lasted as long as I did is I didn't show being bothered and that I was just happy that somebody chose me to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, Can I ask a question about that real quick? You, sure. you just What you just said, you said you, uh, you, you were just happy you were chosen to be there. And I was curious, you know, I, I know that... Donald and Walter over the years have been pretty particular about who they brought into the studio. And I, I wondered, uh, had they, how did they, I mean, I know you had the relationship with Gary Katz, but how did, how did you get involved in the mix with Donald and, and Walter? Was it Gary that brought you in, or, what, or did Donald and Walter have a say as to who they you know, were wanting on this album? Had they, had they heard you before? No, Don, uh, Walter and Donald had no idea that uh, anybody existed that Gary hired. Okay. Gary hired studio musicians. Okay. And they were already a, 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 a rock band out traveling. They didn't have any idea who they were. Now, that's how I'm perceiving this because Gary is definitely the person that brought um, all the players in. Okay. I see. And, and Walter and, and Donald had no idea uh, what was going on. I guess now, once you work with somebody, I'm kind of easy to get along with, and that uh, my career in New York kind of taught me that. If somebody else is, uh, is, uh, who plays the instrument is hiring you to play it, it means that they may have some ideas in their head, mm-hmm. but they can't physically do it. Mm-hmm. Or they can't do it as well as uh, you would do it, because now they know, especially if I'm working with me. Um, uh, and Walter and I are okay. I, I think uh, he's a cool dude. I have no problem at all with Walter or with Donald. Mm-hmm. I know, I understand that they're a bit different. And uh, sometimes when somebody is, 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 you, you can't always understand what somebody else is thinking. It's very difficult. It's hard for me to explain some of the ideas that I have. I just play it. Right. Because if I had to use words, it never would happen. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I've always, I guess it comes from my upbringing at home, 
you know, when you get into it, when a side man gets into a situation like that, nine, 99 out of 100 times, the music has already been thought about, it's been planned, they've already you got an engineer, well, they had three. Uh, three engineers, you've got uh, two uh, uh, individuals as artists, you got a producer. And they have already studied this music, they've always uh, already sat down and planned out how they want it to sound mm-hmm. and how it wants to be. Right. So without words being exchanged, because it's hard, you know, we're not ling- English majors in how to say things. It's best to uh, just to feel what's going to happen mm-hmm. and how it's going to happen. Now, sooner or later, they begin to hear about Steve Gadd, but I think still it's coming from Gary okay. uh, and about Bernard, because Bernard did uh, uh, quite, a, quite a bit of work with Gary in New York. Sure, sure. So now a lot of times I would get... <clears throat> And, and, and it, to me, this is important because a lot of times I would get a bit frustrated, but not to the point to where I would voice my frustration. Because, you know, like one note, this is not, you know, just doesn't sound, they're listening to it, they're soloing the bass. Now, to, to this day, I hate to hear my bass solo because <laughs> it sounds like crap. Um, uh, it, it just doesn't, it does, but when you put the music to it, it sounds great. Right. And, I, and most bass players do say that. But when I know that Nick picking over one little part, and then I made up just about every part, oh, I made up a lot of them, and just trying to get it so specific, I would have to play it a little different, trying to pre-guess what they're hearing, and to tell me what it is, but Donald never could. He couldn't express it in words what it is, and neither could Walter, if huh. it was that kind of thing. I also, you know, felt, too, it was a learning experience for me because their style, basically, uh, starting with the Royal Sam, was the whole rhythm section is sitting in the studio. They've heard the demo, if there was one, and they began to play. Now, once they get the format of the song down, of what the changes are and what's going on, now we go to playing it. And they're only listening for inside. They're only listening to the drums. Mm-hmm all they're listening to and when they find a drum part you might play the song 10 times mm-hmm. and finally you come up with a track that they feel a drum track that they can work with so now uh, 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 the drummer goes and gets all this service or whatever the case may be now they're listening to the bass so I've had all through them listening to the drums I've had time to work out my part <laughs> now that I've worked it out when they're listening to, not me and the guitar and the piano player, uh-huh. uh, uh, they're listening just to the bass. Mm-hmm. And so I might have to play, we all have to play this song as many times as it takes before they're satisfied that they have a bass track that they could use to work with, to, to, to cut up or to overdub, or just a solid bass track. When they're satisfied with me, now they're just listening to guitar. And that's just rhythm guitar. Mm-hmm. So we're all on the clock. So you begin to wonder why they're working that way until you realize what your payday is. <laughs> if you follow what I'm, where, you know, what I'm saying, there. Yeah. you know, you're being paid to sit and listen and this change this and this do this and the blah, blah, blah. Another thing that they did was very interesting. They never worked longer than six hours. Okay. Every now and then they may work six hours and then uh, maybe have a dinner break and then come back and work for three hours. But... I I know that we did that, but I can't I can't recall. <laughs> but their jobs basically were from twelve to six. Okay. Wow. Yeah. 
And during that time, you can give a sandwich, you can do what you got to do because of the nature of how it was. Right. Now, there were very, it's very, very difficult sometimes to play with somebody where they're not satisfied with what's going on, and you and everybody else think that it's magic, that it's perfect. Right. So when somebody else is saying, well, now, let's do this again, or let's try this, or they'll change something that doesn't make sense to you, you know, some people just have to speak up. You know, a lot of uh, there, there are a couple of bass players that went on to the Steel Dan project and walked off of it because they said those guys don't know what they want. Well, they know what they want, but you never know why they're doing what you're doing. It's just just to hang there because you don't have to live there. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to go to study school with them. You don't have to do anything except work for twelve to six. Right. Yeah. And so, a lot of my feel for them was a lot of things did not make sense in reality. But then again, just trusting that I'm I, I'm the bass player, I'm got to do what I got to do, mm-hmm. and most of it, people, a lot, a lot of people feel well, you know, I don't want to be taken advantage of, but I'm not being taken advantage of when I'm being paid, right. and I'm working on union session, which is in, which means my name is on the contract, and also too, the music is successful. Yeah, I got this great story about um, uh, uh, Donald's record, uh, the Nice Lot. Uh huh. Now, uh, when we were doing uh, uh, Asia, for some reason, out of the top of their head, they didn't want any slapping. You know, they wouldn't let right. want it. And so, like, you, you sort of kind of try and ask, well, sometimes it fits, sometimes it don't. But when they adamantly say, you know, like, you know, no, don't do it, play with your fingers. Okay, that's cool. A lot of people would take that as a slap in the face because you decide to slap something and you're trying to make up a part. They should at least listen. Mm-hmm. Okay. I understand. They've been listening to Lewis Johnson. Lewis Johnson was the premier slapper mm-hmm. today, and I didn't like it. <laughs> it. The bass didn't sound like a bass to me. Uh-huh. You know, Larry Graham's bass sounded like a bass. Right. Slap, but the, 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 the slap sound was not, and then I was playing a Fender, and, and like my slap was not at all metallic like Lewis did. Right, real tinny. And yeah. I thought that I slapped pretty good. Uh-huh. So anyway, we went through that whole thing with me turning my back and slapping and they're understanding that it's a, you know, blah, blah. Right. Uh, we get to the Nightfly, and I think the song is the Nightfly. Uh-huh. I was a bit disappointed, and I was living in Boulder, Colorado at the time. And they flew me in uh, 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 into L.A., and I stayed in my hotel room for two hours, I mean, for two days, without doing anything. And when they did call me over to the studio, there was just a drum machine and Rick Derringer. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm sitting there, there was no vocal, I didn't hear anything. I got a little frustrated. And I only stayed there for an hour and then went back to the hotel. When I did come to play, um, there was this line, a line that I play a whole lot, whatever, and it just fits. Whatever the pattern is, it's on, I think, the light five. And I was slapping. And um, and he didn't want me to slap it. I thought that the slapping feel and the sound would really help boost that record. Okay, so I played it with my fingers like he asked me. And uh, and uh, went back, and I, just, uh, I think I just did two songs. And when I got back, when the record came out, it ended up being a hit, a big, big hit. And I remember thinking to myself, and I think I maybe I talked about it in the clinic, you know, I'm not being too particular about somebody asking you to, what they ask you to do. The record was going to be a hit, but I slapped it, picked it, played it with my tongue, <laughs> played it with my little finger. It was going to be a hit in full of it. It was going to be so. A hit. My little personal parent, uh, 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 preference on wanting to slap it, I can only take that too far. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, so these things remind me of uh, who I am. You know, yeah. I'm a side player that's fortunate for a lot of people to like, 
and to play, and I enjoy. I enjoy playing it. Mm-hmm. I enjoy making up bass lines. But when you know, it's it's funny you mentioned uh, listening to you talk about these experiences with Donald and, and Walter on the Steady Dan albums. It, 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 it I'm sure it reminds me and uh, Rick, you know, as we look at each other here in the studio, that uh, you know we recall you know uh, interesting stories uh, from Greg Fillingains, Michael O'Marty, and other guys that have been part of those sessions. And isn't isn't it just amazing, almost miraculous, that at the end of all of those <laughs> weird stories and the interesting encounters of of of, uh, of playing on the these um, studio dance sessions that some way somehow these things become magic and and it, it something beautiful ends up being recorded and you're a part of it and Michael is and Greg is and Derringer and you know at the very end actually you look back and there's just a legacy of just such music there that that ended so uh, so positive and and so so embraced you follow me I certainly do that shows the rest of the world that are not that, see they think that we have fun. <laughs> that, that, that this is easy. Oh, yeah. It, you know, it, it's funny because um, Michael Martin, when we spoke with him, you know, I, I recall, you know, telling him uh, or asking him, hey, what was the, tell, give us the cool experiences from working with Walter. And you know what he told us? Sort of funny. He told us, he says, you know what? It, it was a job. I didn't go in there for an experience. I went there to work, you know, just to your point. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with him. It was work now. It was not easy. Yeah. But now it's like any other job. When you do a good job at whatever it is you're working at, you know, it, 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 you know, you start walking like George Jefferson for a second. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you feel good because somebody else can do it if you can't do it. Yeah. Well, you know, you, I've been to your website and, and I've looked at your discography and, and you've performed with so many, you know, artists over the years. And, you know, what, what surprised me, though, in all of uh, your career, you, you've, you've only released a couple of solo projects. Is that right? Right. Yeah, you've uh, the Chuck Rainey Coalition in 72, and I think another one called Born Again in 1981. But I had a question for you about uh, the uh, the Chuck Rainey Coalition. Uh, th- that included, you know, a really soulful arrangement of uh, Harlem Nocturne, and in probably the funkiest version of Peter Gunn that I've ever heard. <laughs> and uh, tell me a little bit about that project, and tell me some of the players that were on that album. Um, I wish I had the album in front of me. I'm kind of glad you brought that up, because that, it's very interesting, man. Probably people need to know about stuff like this. Yeah. Uh, because I have done so much work with Gary McFarlane and Kyle Jada, they were on Sky. And Jerome Richardson was also on Sky, uh, as was uh, Lena Horne. Okay. And, and Gato Vibrari. Now, Norman Schwartz was the president, and he ended up being a real kind of, uh, how can I say this politely? A real hustler for everybody. Uh-huh. But this is what happened when it got to me and and Gary, uh, uh, Gary produced that record. Uh, Gary wanted to do a record with me, and we started with Sky. And I asked Richard T. to do the arrangements uh, on songs that were not arranged. And uh, so we hired everybody that we knew that was on that was top shelf in New York. Okay. If you look at the credits on that record, all of those people were premium first call studio musicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, except for Ray Lucas and George Stubbs, who were not on the studio scene, but they were in King. They, they were with me when I was in King Curtis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a who's who list, and very few of those people are still alive. Um, we started a project, and the bills weren't being paid. My contract was not signed, but you go ahead and do what you got to do while you got these players, while you can make the time. So the, the the record was supposed to be uh, rhythm section and strings, and uh, so we ended up tracking the whole record, 
and but not being able to finish it because the bills weren't paid. Yeah. And A&R was complaining about they didn't want to do it until they at least got paid for so and so and so. Anyway, we had done enough uh, for, unbeknown um, uh, to me, by the way, enough for Gary and somebody to go in and to sort of kind of mix and master the record without doing overdubs or completing the record. And the record was uh, uh, put out unbeknownst to me. Now, I'm a hard-working studio musician. I'm working every day. I'm not going overseas. I'm not doing anything. I had no idea that the Chuck Wayne Coalition had been released because I had never signed a contract. And I went, uh, you know, time went by. When I was in L.A., I went to um, uh, uh, Japan with uh, Sadao Watanabe and found that the Chuck, it was an album, Chuck Wayne Coalition. <laughs> and I looked at it, and this, this was his record that we never finished. So you were with Sadao Watanabe in Japan, and you found out about the release. Yeah, because they were selling it there. Wow, wow! And you know, to your point about to your point about Japan, it's it's uh, Japan is just uh, an interesting component on on the the music scene, just because it has such an unquenchable appetite for for let's just call it old school and the, and the solid sounds and the real uh, music that really means something. And here in the states, it sort of dissolves. But there's that European and the J Japanese market that just seems to to be unquenchable. Don't you see it that way? I certainly do. They're they're um, uh, they're about that on any kind of music. Yeah. They like to hear um, even the young people today in Japan. Mm -hmm. You know, hard R and B. Mm -hmm. You know, like yeah. they dance to it. They like it. They That's right. You know, especially black musicians, I think. Now, yeah. Japan, is, they have so many people there. Uh, it's probably true in every ethnic, with every ethnic group. But when you walk into Tower Records, you know, they're the, 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 um, uh, you, you go to, if, if, you, if it's a black artist, you go to a black artist section. Yeah. If it's a European artist or a Swiss artist, you go to that section. And they have a whole lot of music. Record companies here have been really, uh, uh, and artists don't know about it. But uh, again, even with King Curtis, I have done a lot of demos with King Curtis, only to find out that they were records. Wow! You know, <laughs> that, and I found a record, a, a wow. compilation in Stuttgart, Germany, Interesting. That, uh, that a DJ, uh, DJ gave me, and I'm going, whoa! Look at that. Isn't All these amazing? little rehearsals and demos I was making with Curtis, they're records now. <laughs> wow. I don't know whether he knew about it, right. but somebody knew about it. Um, uh, somebody knows about it. Uh, Japan has been one of uh, my greatest experiences ever. Mm -hmm. That's great. I love Japan. Well, hey, Chuck, we really appreciate you spending time with us. And uh, uh, for more information, you, you've got your website. It's chuckrainy.com, correct? Yeah, a lot of good information there. All your discography and and uh, a lot of a lot of great information. And and I wanted to ask you one more question before we go here. Um, what what kinds of things are you working on right now, or what does two thousand nine look for you? Well, uh, I'm finishing up a uh, a current CD. Mm -hmm. uh, a solo project? Yes. Oh, good. Good. Very nice. Very nice. And um, uh, very very proud of it. it. Sounds real good. Um. And I expect to be finished with it uh, by the end of February. Finished mean, meaning it being um, um, uh, something to distribute. Mm -hmm. However, you know, like, I don't want to be a record company, although I will, because a lot of people are doing that now. But the black market has not been kind to me at all. Mm -hmm. I've done two records since I've been here in Texas, and I have not licensed or made to agree with anybody, but you can buy it anywhere. And it costs money uh, to protect yourself that way. Yeah. I spent 
thousands of dollars in Japan uh, to stop uh, a black market on one of my records at Tower Records. And they stopped it for a year, but every time I go to Japan, they still got it. Mm-hmm. So I would rather be united with a, um, uh, a major label, which mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure is available to me. I just have to show what I'm doing mm-hmm. so that people don't think of me as uh, a Chuck Randy from back to the coalition sure. or born again. Right. You know, because it's a little bit different. Same thing because I'm an honest groove player. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I've chosen uh, a market that's, uh, uh, you know, big enough. And what I know people will accept from me. So I expect to be finished. That's what I'm doing now. Well, I want to tell you guys, too, <clears throat> I have a, a Japanese website that is the bomb. Really? Uh, this guy was a student when he was very, very young. And over the years, he's created a, a, an official Japanese website. Oh, very cool. And on his website, he's gone from 1966 all the way up to the current with every record that wow. I've ever done. Wow. Um, and... If you have a chance, an opportunity, or anyone listening want to take a look at it, yeah, sure. Um, it's not. I had it up when I had my uh, MySpace page, right? But I had to take it down because the hacker was making a life out of uh, <laughs> uh, uh, hacking my site. Yeah, we know how that goes sometimes. And so I took it down. But if I can give you the address, yes, uh, you might want to take a look at it because it's very, very thorough. Yeah, go ahead and tell us, and everybody can take a look at that. Well, you know what? Why, why don't I recommend that to you? Uh, just email that to me and Rick, and we'll go ahead and put that link on our yeah. We'll put it on our site on our site, so people that uh, that go ahead and and listen to the interview, they'll be able to read that link, and we'll have it there, and you'll have no problems there. So we can just email it to us, and we'll take care of it, right, Rick? Yeah, we'll do that. I will do that. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, you know, and you know what, uh, Chuck, when uh, it's getting closer to the time for the release of your new album, please uh, stay in touch and let us know, and we'll be sure to tell everybody. Absolutely. Well, I certainly will. And I'm also, t- uh, I'm on Facebook now, so if anybody wants to contact me cool. on Facebook, oh, okay. I'm there. Very right. good. That's wonderful. Guys, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for your interest in me and my career. Oh, no problem. And thanks for your time, Chuck. We appreciate it. All right. Best wishes to you. All right. Bye-bye. We'll bye-bye. talk to you later. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Chuck Rainey for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Be sure to join us again on February 16th as Inside Music Cast welcomes composer, producer, arranger, and keyboardist Clarence McDonald. For more information about Inside Music Cast, check out our website at InsideMusicCast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and MySpace. We'd love to hear from you, and we always take our listeners' input and suggestions into consideration. So drop us an email anytime at input at InsideMusicCast.com. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.